This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. Politics of the United States. This week, power shift. John Podesta leaves the top spot at the Center for American Progress, and we speak exclusively with the woman who's taking the reins, Neera Tandon, plus Senior Vice President for Communications, Jennifer Palmieri. Tandon and Palmieri on progressive leadership in Washington, analysis of the 2012 campaign, and a few war stories you've never heard from 2008. Then we check in with James Davis, the newly minted chief spokesman and communications director for the 2012 Republican National Convention in Tampa, Florida. I'm joined, as always, by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, once again, coming to us across the pond in London. Take it away, my friend. So we are joined by Neera Tandon, the new chief executive officer of the Center for American Progress, and Jennifer Palmieri, the senior vice president for communications of the Center for American Progress. Henceforth, we will call it CAP, uh, and also the president of uh, of the foundation of the center. And as we're sitting here, I'm thinking back 10 years, and I think both Neera and Jen were on the south lawn of the White House under a tent, President Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and the entire White House staff, both the current staff and those that had worked prior. Uh, We were all given, I believe, t-shirts, coasters, and plastic cups with a silkscreen picture of uh, a roller coaster, and it said, I survived the Clinton roller coaster. And it was a reference to John Podesta. And for so many of us, and I think our guests today, Uh, Podesta was heroic in a way that he helped us all survive the Clinton roller coaster. And what would we do now? And a lot of us left government, left Washington, but there began something that was called the Center for American Progress. And both Neera and Jen were part of that. And it became for so many of us who worked during the Clinton years, almost a a government in exile, awaiting the next uh, inheritor of Clinton's mantle to come back to the White House. And so I'm wondering, after you've served that function so beautifully for now 10 years, uh, what remains the role for the Center of American Progress if the government in exile, so many of them have moved back into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? You know, our goal was always to change the conversation in Washington in a more progressive direction, but more importantly, change the country. And so you know, we worked very hard to put forward big ideas, medium-sized ideas, uh, small ideas, but continually put out ideas that helped uh, create a space for progressive governance. And so obviously we're excited by the election of Barack Obama and some of our biggest uh, achievements have been the realization of policy proposals we put forward from ending the war in Iraq to uh, reforming our health care system in a way that would cover uh, tens of millions more Americans. And so, uh, but I, you know, I think our vision has always been and will continue to be uh, to change the, to change the country, to put forward big ideas, to 
make uh, the American people's lives better and to ensure America's leadership in the world. And um, and so uh, and that's important whether we're government, you know, we progressives are in power or out of power or uh, in have some branches of government. Uh, because, uh, you know, what we've learned is that it's not just putting ideas out when you're in power. Uh, you have to create the seeds for growth later uh, when you're out of power. And so, you know, I, you know, our mission is long and enduring, and uh, I think we'll be uh, working on these issues for, for decades to come. So, Neera, for those of our listeners who aren't perfectly familiar with CAP, the Center for American Progress. How does that actually work? And compare it to other progressive or liberal think tanks that work in Washington. And what, what differentiates your organization and how did it build up to the point where it is now? Well, when we started, you know, we're still relatively young. We have, we've, we're reaching our eighth year anniversary. And, um, you know, we saw that there was uh, you know, there was a need in the market. You know, there had been no progressive organization um, that worked on issues, uh, of, on the range of issues from foreign policy to domestic policy to economic policy. And the reason why that's important is because some of the most important innovations is in policy is combining areas. Uh, like, you know, some of the most important work we've done is energy work, and that's really a combination of um, environmental uh, policy work as well as economic policy work. Uh, you know, when we were in the Clinton administration, you know, there were very strong uh, organizations on the right who were ideological um, and issue-based, and they, the right had really created an ideas infrastructure. And so uh, when we came out of power, I think it was people saw the real need for that kind of organization on the center-left. Um, and so, uh, and, and that also uniquely combines um, an intense focus on communications and strategy, uh, which Jennifer leads for the C3, um, because it's not just putting the papers out there, but thinking um, strategically about how to move the debate and, you know, some of the most uh, important work, like the work we've done on ending the war in Iraq, that was, you know, that was a center-wide effort where the policy teams put forward a communication, a, a policy idea uh, and a bold policy idea, but it was the communications teams and our external teams that worked to ensure that, it, you know, that it got an airing in Washington in the, in the discussions of the day, but also uh, people on the Hill and uh, other progressive leaders and we're receptive to it. Uh, that's how our work really kind of comes to life. So, Jen, I mean, talk about that a little bit. I mean, CAP has always has always fought so much above its weight class, and that may be somewhat due to Podesta and to and to the other people that have come in, like Nira, like P.J. Crowley, like yourself. But how do you get this this disproportionate share of voice in the Washington uh, media media and and communications marketplace where you you really did sort of burst onto the stage eight years ago and it was like you were there forever and what what were the tricks of the trade that you really put into force well i think part of us had been there forever right i mean john nira myself sarah wartell who also uh founded the place we had just been in the white house and 
Um, um, and it was it was a a group of uh, a group of mostly Democrats, although we had one Republican at the start who's still here, Larry Corp, um, who had always been involved in policy and politics and communications, deciding that there was a real void in this particular area, and so you know we moved. Um, you know, we were asked to leave. We weren't asked to leave the White House. The Constitution said we had to. Um, uh, and uh, you took that same group of people into to filling what we what we saw as a void. And certainly, Josh, you experienced, and you're an experienced, and I experienced, uh, the power of the right wing when we were in uh, the Clinton White House. And each of us, I think, has a story uh, about, you know, uh, about how CAP came into being. And I have one vivid memory of during the transition um, after our fun party on the South Lawn with John's T-shirts and Fleetwood Mac. We moved the transition into the President Clinton's transition out of office, where you're given an office for six months and staff for six months. And uh, we were at uh, a townhouse nearby the White House on, on, on Jackson Place. And uh, there was no press secretary hired at the time. Um, and it was, you know, the idea that Bill Clinton didn't need a press secretary is ludicrous. <laughs> um, and, you know, he will always need a team of media advisors till, you know, um, long after he, um, he has... And he needed Jake to use an ATM machine, too, right? He needed... <laughs> So we had uh, so uh, John was calling people in from the sidelines to come help, and I eventually came in uh, uh, to become a, a press person. Um, uh, and we had all this horrible, um, all the horrible pardon stories. Not to bring, not to remind Adam of a of a fun issue on. for the right, but. Um, and so John and I are dealing with this, you know, and it was a nightmare, and it's like one in the morning, and we're lying on the floor of the townhouse, and he says, this can never happen again. <laughs> there has to be a place where progressives and Democrats can be in and be working on issues, whether we're in power or whether we're not. So it was, I think we felt like the need to have a, a policy arm, the need to have a really strong communications arm, someone that was critiquing the right in a very aggressive way, as well as putting ideas forward. So I I think it was, um, um, I mean, I think part of the reason why CAP had the early success and big impact early on was because it was not um, new players. It was people just doing, filling um, a, uh, a, different, uh, a different void. And, you know, Nero's right. I mean, we don't just put policy papers forward. We, we think of 10 ideas of how to try to advance them with a communications and political strategy. And, you know, Josh, you know how it is in communications. I mean, we try 10 things and three of them work. Right. Um, you know, you still are, uh, you're, you're at, um, you know, we're still like working with high batting averages as opposed to, um, you know, getting home runs every time. But uh, I think it was the level of uh, experience and the and I actually wasn't part of the, the first team that came in, but the level of sophistication and uh, that came in with that first team of how exactly we knew what that void was, having been the victim of it in the uh, in the Clinton White House. You know, the level of sophistication that Cap uh, brings to the conversation is really where I get very interested in what you do. Um, the to, to pay a compliment, I think that. Uh, you all have have really led the way with best practices in, in this space with regard to multimedia, video, interactive elements. I even send, tend to land on the on the cap site and see cartoons uh, that that are original and are funny. But you also give a second life to just about every single event that you do, uh, Jennifer. Especially when you bring disparate voices in Washington together uh, under your umbrella. You guys are good at messaging the backdrops and the the uh, 
the production values are sound, but none of this happens and, and, and is not able to be appreciated. If you weren't in the room, there's a way to, to see it and to share it. And that is something that a lot of folks uh, in in this realm in Washington have been slow to embrace, but you guys have been way out in front and showing this in some wonderful videos. I feel like you're communicating to people in a way that they want to be communicated to. Is that is that your objective? Yeah, I mean, our objective is to understand that the, there are different audiences that will, you know, that um, experience news and, in, in, you know, in different ways. So we always, with everything that we do, we don't just do an event. We try to hit, you know, there's like the offline stuff in terms of event and print media. And then we have a very successful blog, um, thinkprogress.org, mm-hmm. that uh, has become, an, you know, it's like there's 28 people there. It's There are newsrooms in Washington that are uh, significantly smaller than what progress has become and it's become a new site in its own um, in its own right and um, uh, and we do I mean it was important I mean Nira and John were part of this but it was important when we came in at the beginning to to, to be a very professional looking um, uh, have a professional looking event space we knew from you know lessons taught to us by Josh King experiences with him and being in the White House how important that sort of uh, having that kind of uh, stature was and then the other thing we do is we work really closely with um, the administration obviously allies on the hill but in particular the other progressive groups so you know maybe we put something out on um, on health care and it has a veterans angle and we're not the best messengers or we're not going to break through in a way that this group vote vets, um, a group of uh, Iraq and Afghan uh, war veterans um, that are progressive, that they might. So, you know, we'll work with them and have them do something or, or you know, or SCIU if it's, um, if it's an issue with uh, that would affect them or something. But we try to, you know, we're content providers, um, we're communicators, we work, we try, we think our goal is to influence the influencers, but we're not people that are talking to voters per se, but we're trying to reach, influence that debate, reach people who do. I remember uh, going back a couple years being involved in in trying to help launch the American Action Network and the American Action Forum. And one of the things that that you realize quickly when you're trying to jump into the space, even in a small way, is that being affiliated with the Center for American Progress, even in the debate of ideas, uh, and you talk about that professional uh, event space, but that's something that you all seem to be very receptive to. I mean, if there's thought leadership from someone like Doug Holtz-Eakin or, yeah. or others, you bring those voices together for a thoughtful conversation. And it's it's not, I mean, it is a partisan element in some ways, but the conversation that comes of these disparate voices together is what's really enlightening. And, and it just to my mind, helps every brand that gets associated with CAP in those discussions. You know, we believe that ideas matter. I mean, that's why we created the Center for American Progress. <laughs> and so that's, you know, and and we like to hear ideas from everywhere. And as uh, Jennifer said, you know, we're unapologetically, unapologetically progressive. And uh, so, and we are also, you know, we don't shy away from a, a good battle or even discourse on these issues. And so it's uh, it's important to us to engage with conservatives, whether it's uh, on, you know, through the Internet or directly in meetings. Um, or even on satellite radio occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's our favorite medium. Yes, that's our part. That's the best. Um, but you know, we want we want to have a good, rich uh, discussion and and sh- you know have a back and forth. 
Neera, you, you you grew up in Bedford, Massachusetts, um, with a single parent at home, and and it was from everything we've read, you know, it was hard to uh, find all the resources you needed for uh, for college and for Yale Law School. And at what point in the arc of your of your growing up did did the not notion that ideas matter begin to resonate? I mean, bring us through a little bit from that moment in Bedford, Massachusetts, and and the arc that you've had. Uh, through through your education and then working in the White House, working with Senator Clinton, working on her campaign, and then and then and interspersed with your time at CAP. I mean, how how has this all evolved for you going back? Well, this is a this is a little hokey, but you know, I really had always wanted to be a lawyer, and then um, uh, I mean, even when I was uh, younger, I wanted to be a lawyer, um, but. It really was the 92 presidential campaign that uh, got me interested in politics and policy. Um, and it's funny, I had applied to Yale Law School, and then I was I had no longer really wanted to be a lawyer. And so I was, I was thinking, maybe this was not a great idea. But it turned out to be a great thing to go to Yale, even though I have not practiced law uh, really a single day since I graduated. Um, but, you know, it really was for me uh, sort of two levels. I mean, from my own experience, um, you know, I know that uh, what the government does matters. I mean, I was, uh, as a child, I was, my mother was on welfare and for a time being um, before she could find a job as a travel agent and work her way up. Um, and, you know, if it weren't for welfare, I would have gone back to India and been the child of divorced parents in the 70s, which... You know, one can only imagine that that would not have been a fantastic fate. So, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually, you know, the influence of government programs and policies has been really fundamental to my uh, life experience. And so, for me, it was always obvious that I wanted to do something that, um, you know, kind of helped ensure that there was opportunity for other people, like the opportunity I had. And you know, I think at a time when people are really cynical about government doing anything effective, my own story is important as a reminder to me that, you know, people got together and thought through policies, uh, you know, with the very idea of ensuring that uh, people like myself would have an opportunity to one day climb into the middle class and that those those policies worked uh, very effectively in my life. And um, so that's why, you know, it's always been important to me to ensure whether I'm in government or outside of government to ensure that, you know, our country is living up to the promise that it, uh, that it had for me in my life. Well, thank you for sharing that, Nira, because I think that gives everybody a, a, a better appreciation for your life experience. And as you ascend to become the, the grand poobah, as I would say, of the Center for American Progress, that puts a lot of things in perspective. One of the things that I was thinking about uh, as we sat down to talk today is this idea that, uh, Nira, you have a history uh, in politics serving the Clintons. You, you work for uh, our... Uh, uh, Secretary of State when she was in the United States Senate. And uh, Jennifer, you've played a role in presidential politics in the 04 campaign uh, with with uh, uh, Kerry and Edwards. And it, it occurs to me as we take a look at the uh, uh, 
very divisive Republican field out there in the 2012 race, uh, and things are really starting to ratchet up. Do you look back on your experience in this sort of cannibalistic period of, of presidential candidate primaries, uh, and and is it something you wouldn't wish on anyone else? Are you taking any joy in seeing uh, what goes on here in any real way? Um, so I, you know, I'm I, I'm enjoying it thoroughly. I mean, I. Uh, I, I managed all of Hillary's debates, and I have to say, our our debates were extraordinarily uh, staid oh in, compa- in comparison yeah. to these debates. I mean, you know, it was actually a, it was actually it's interesting difference between uh, in, between the parties and the primaries. But I mean, any candidate and and Hillary experienced this directly. But any candidate that became, um, you know, that was looked at as going super negative. And our primary was punished um, by Democrats. I mean, the thing about our our primary in 2008 uh, was that, you know, essentially the the party liked all the candidates or most of the candidates and really reacted negatively towards uh, the debate going in any way negative, especially in the debates when people were directly talking to each other. Um, You know, whether it was Barack Obama saying likable enough or Hillary uh, attacking on, um, you know, the president, now President Obama's past, you know, there was a directly negative reaction to anything that seemed particularly mean, and that does not seem to be operating. No, I think, I think Republicans <laughs> at this point want a steel cage match. Two men enter, one man leaves, <laughs> and this is how we need to, to settle this. Yes, I mean, I think you can make a broad statement about the differences between, like, the psychological analysis of uh, Democrats and Republicans looking at our primary, where Democrats were like, no, don't be mean, and uh, (laughs) Republicans Republicans just would like them to actually wrestle. Bring us into that um, debate prep room as as ABC is doing its debate with George Stephanopoulos uh, moderating uh, Senator Clinton against... Senator Obama and Senator Clinton says you're likable enough. Did that did that sock you at the bottom of the stomach? How did you react to that moment of video? Uh, when he when he said that, I mean, I thought it was. I mean, this is the craziness of debates. It's like when someone when someone was overly mean. You know, we were like, this is great. <laughs> I mean, at first when he did it, I was angry. You know, because uh, it was you know it was a very personal shot and. Uh, I mean, everyone started. Hillary was in New Hampshire. Uh, it was two day. It was Saturday night. the The vote was on Tuesday. You know, obviously, we seemed, felt like we had our backs totally against the wall. Um, uh, but then, you know, people started mentioning it to her and the rope line and how they were angry about it. And the local news. What was really interesting was, you know, the local coverage, which we were all watching because. Uh, that was more important. It was most important to win New Hampshire. I mean, they picked up on it. None of the national reporters picked up on it. But the local reporters, I still remember this one, one guy sort of saying, well, what's up with that? Um, and so, uh, you know, so those are, there are always these moments in debates that the debates that, catalyze, you know, sort of catalyze things for people. Um, but that was one where that really came from people's direct perceptions because it wasn't something that was pushed around in the press until sort of days later when it kind of, you know, because, because people were talking about it because obviously women shifted dramatically from their votes, you know, the votes of New Hampshire and New Hampshire women voted swung dramatically towards Hillary and in Iowa we'd lost women. So, 
in terms of prep, uh, <laughs> you know, the most important thing for us was, you know, to ensure that we got our ideas across and responded to everything, but did it in a way that um, that we were very mindful that Democratic Party Democratic voters wanted to have these people look like they were getting along. Jennifer, you got to jump in here because you're no stranger to uh, high stakes, high wire, no net political campaigning. That's the understatement of the year, and, and especially Jennifer's trajectory. <laughs> well, you know, for folks who are listening to right. Jennifer Palmieri uh, on POTUS, <laughs> Polyoptics, Channel 124, I want to make sure that people understand that, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're having an opportunity to hear from two women who have played at the very highest levels of uh, presidential and campaign politics, and, and, and this insight is, is really fascinating. Um, yeah, I've been through some, yeah, I have been through some high stakes, um, yeah, again, I got like that big wrinkle in between your eyebrows from it, like walking around for eight years saying like, what, what, what just happened? Um, but it, um, I mean, I thought that that was the, I thought the democratic, um, I mean, that primary, um, was such a, uh, was such a death match, but I could see, I mean, at that point I was sort of removed for it. I had been an Edwards person in 04 and Don a little bit on the Elizabeth side in, in 08. And, you know, it was clear like Don was just like not going anywhere after, um, after Iowa. Um, but it, um, and I, I remember when after, um, after Obama lost, Ohio and Texas. Um, I was quoted in an AP story saying that this was a good thing to happen to Obama because he was going to have to stay in and he was going to get better and um, voters were going to be hearing about democratic issues for the next few months as opposed to the Republicans getting a lot of um, uh, a coverage. And um, I got an email from my good friend Bill Burton, who was the press secretary of the campaign, <laughs> emailed me from Obama campaign and said, this makes me want to kill you. <laughs> but, but you know I'm right. I refuse to acknowledge that you are right. This makes me want to kill you. But it was, um, uh, I don't mean to be super partisan, but I'm like trying to look at this objectively. I don't know that I see a Republican primary. I don't know that what I've seen thus far in the Republican primary is actually helping the party uh, appeal to more voters, which is ultimately what you want the primary to do, I, right? I, mean, it could I would be, agree with you on that. I, I, I think mean, that that's objective and, and very true. You know, this, I think Jennifer's statement was really right at the time, and I actually, you know, I was one of a few people who moved from Hillary's campaign to Obama's campaign. Um, and, you know, I think in, in the difference, and maybe this is a big difference, but, you know, Obama was very new, and but and there was a variety of attacks that we were on the Obama campaign worried about people, about McCain launching. But, you know, when you looked at the research, they felt like, all these issues had been vetted in the Democratic primary so that it was, you know, people weren't uh, alarmed about them because they felt like, even though I, you know, I don't think they heard all that much, but they felt like, you know, even the heirs issue or any of the Chicago stuff had all been dealt with. And that was a, that was a huge service to, to, uh, to then Senator Obama. And, you know, and we're also at a time where people kind of wanted to move beyond you know, the politics of personal scandal or anything like that. And so, and, you know, he didn't, it's not like Senator Obama had a variety of scandals, but it's just like as a new person um, who, you know, many Americans didn't know, uh, he also benefited, you know, who was in the public eye for a very long time and from the primary. And so the extended primary, not that I think anyone totally admits this, 
in the Obama administration, <laughs> from the Obama campaign today. But I do, my own view is that that extended primary was very helpful to Senator Obama. Yeah. I mean, as we, as we conclude, though, with Neera Tandon and Jennifer Palmieri, I, I might sort of be the devil's advocate and disagree with both you guys and Adam and challenge you this way, which is Adam and I were talking before we went on the air about the Republican cacophony and the fact that Rick Perry is just never has not got his act together and that Mitt Romney, who might not appeal perfectly to his own base, has nevertheless almost secured sort mm-hmm. of the, the momentum toward this nomination with on the money side, on the organizational side. And, you know, a, as a person who sort of admires a pretty good, a pretty well packaged candidate, I see him almost able to begin to think about the general election even in October of 2011 rather than June of 2008, which is when McCain sort of took up the mantle against Senator Obama. And so we let's all agree that, Senator, that President Obama and his team have their share of challenges against a, a pretty formidable, moderate, potential Republican nominee. And what do you think Obama needs to do over the next 12 months and change to secure re-election? I mean, look, the biggest challenge for the president is the economy. You know, his biggest benefit is people like him. I mean, he's in some ways, you know, he's like the inverse of Mitt Romney, which is people don't like Mitt Romney. Uh, even people in the Republican Party don't like Mitt Romney since Herman Cain. Uh, you know, the, the fact that there was any poll in which Herman Cain was doing better than Mitt but, Romney. But Neera, isn't, that just, isn't, big that, isn't that just sort of weird noise, though? I mean, this, the, the whole fact that Cain has no no uh, organization and, and, you know, our friends like no, Mark, it is Mark Panner. I mean, exactly. there will be a Republican nominee and the Republicans will get behind their nominee and he will be well-financed and he will be well-packaged. Yeah, but it does matter that they're not as enthused, that they're that, that in October they're still looking at someone who who's clearly not going to be the nominee. I mean, like, that's you don't want that. That's not what, the, you know, you would prefer to have everyone. It's not going to be easy for them and you would prefer to have everyone really enthusiastic about your candidate. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I take your point that it's, it's you know, that Herman Cain is not likely to be president. And, look, primaries, you know, are, I, I always believe that um, primaries are a good thing because the nominee uh, in whatever race emerges stronger having done battle in a primary. And so, you know, but that was always going to happen. What's odd about Mitt Romney is just that we are, you know, we are in October and he's and people are having second thoughts to the point where, you know, they're thinking of completely unviable candidates. Um, now, I mean, ultimately, I do think you know, the thing that we, you know, Democrats should recognize is Republicans are generally an extremely unified party. Um, and so I don't want right. to undercut that. But, you know, we ha- we are in a kind of new phase of of, of partisan politics and. You know, the Republican Party put up uh, some candidates in the last cycle that if they had gone with a different candidate would have been um, a different, you know, they would have done better. But they were also, you know, they're also facing some concern from Tea Party candidate, Tea Party voters not actually voting. So I don't actually know, um, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't assume that a Mitt Romney can can generate a, a ton of enthusiasm um, from the most activist base. And. You know, I think that's, you know, and I think President Obama has challenges of his own in that regard. Um, but, uh, you know, I respect that I do share your respect for the professionalism of the 
uh, of the Romney operation and the fact that they've always kind of looked at the goalpost and not gotten freaked out by the noise around them. Um, and, you know, I have a, a tremendous respect for that. You know, it's funny. I, I had noted to Josh that uh, Governor Perry uh, was really stepping up his visual game this week. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that 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 is going to start to make a difference because uh, it's going to stand in stark contrast to the very haphazard uh, way the campaign has been run thus far. But I think that to Josh's question of you know, what does the president need to do, I have gone back and forth this, on this idea that uh, you know the president is so formidable and, and maybe impossible to beat that oh, well, the White House is beating themselves. And then you see him turn the corner and, and, and sort of assert himself as commander-in-chief last Friday uh, with the announcement uh, that he's bringing all the troops uh, home from Iraq. He's making good on a campaign promise. There's a lot of substantive disagreement about the status of forces agreement and so forth. But I think that when you couple uh, the ability, although not always harnessed, my opinion, uh, of this president to really reassert himself and to be a game changer with the money he's going to have, uh, despite where we are in the economy, he's going to be a formidable opponent for any candidate on the Republican side. And in his ability to get out of the, of the White House and out of the Beltway, uh, whether it's you know under the guise of a campaign for the American Jobs Act or it's you know a, a, an honest to God campaign swing, is when he reconnects and reinvigorates himself, and those are the things that are going to help reassert himself with the American people, and that makes him tough to beat. And I think you've seen that in the last few, you know, since, I mean, I think we would probably all four of us agree that August was sort of the low point for American <laughs> politics. Um, and that since then, I think, you know, for Obama, it's been, you know, coming out of, uh, um, of, of a hole and that, you know, the Republicans have been, you know, like we didn't have a huge government showdown, government shutdown showdown in the fall that we, you know, well, you know, I know there's one up ahead, but we didn't have that problem in September. And, you know, he's been, uh, doing well, promoting the Jobs Act, and you know, mo- and now has you know, he's still promoting the Jobs Act, but at the same time, he's saying you know we can't wait, and he's moving forward with some executive actions as well. And I think that probably by the time we get to the end of the fall, Congress will pass some measures, you know, perhaps just the tax provisions, unemployment insurance of the American Jobs Act, and then the president will end the year in a stronger position. Um, and probably in a stronger position, you know, and, and have more leverage um, over the Republican Congress. Not necessarily that there'll be more happening, but that he'll have the leverage, uh, the moral leverage in the eyes of the public. And then, obviously, the contrast, we feel good about, we feel great about the contrast between what Obama wants to do and what, um, and what the Republicans are putting forward, which is more conservative, you know, in many ways than, um, um, than Bush. Um, but I still think, and I know that the White House thinks that, you know, there also needs to be more that Obama is running on, and that's what I think you'll see. You know, that's what happens in the other part of next Jennifer, uh, Palmieri, Neera Tannen, we really appreciate your time on Polyoptics. Uh, very lucky to have you, and uh, good luck as you continue for it. And, and Neera, congratulations on, uh, on moving up in the world. Thank you guys so much. Thanks right. very much, guys. It was fun. Up next, James Davis, the newly minted chief spokesman for the 2012 Republican National Convention in Tampa, Florida. Yeah. 
Josh, our, our next guest, uh, James Davis, is the uh, communications director and chief spokesman for the 2012 Republican National Convention, which is going to be taking place down in Tampa, Florida at the St. Pete Times Forum. Uh, and it is, as always, going to be one of the most important political optic events uh, of any political cycle. And uh, even as we watch the primaries uh, start to roll by us and the debates and, and all of the elements that go towards choosing a nominee, uh, it, it culminates in cooperation with that campaign uh, of of the nominee with this Republican National Convention. Of course, the Democrats, uh, having hit a high watermark in uh, 2008 with President Obama and this unprecedented uh, element out in Denver. The bar is very high, James, and we're very excited to have you here and talk about what you all are doing in the formative stages of planning this convention. Thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me to the program today. It's a great opportunity to come and talk to you about the progress that's being made here uh, as we set the stage to elect the next Republican president. Uh, there's a, a lot of things that have been done, and uh, most of it's logistics. Uh, we're doing a lot uh, to plan for the 15,000-plus members of the credentialed media that will be here. Um, obviously, the convention is a unique event and that it's the only time really in the campaign that the world just stops and the media pays 100% attention to what's going on with your nominee. And so that's a very unique opportunity. Uh, and as always, there are moments in, the, uh, in, in, a, in a campaign that really mark what the campaign really means. And uh, we hope to have a number of those moments here uh, at the 2012 Republican National Convention in Tampa. So we're working hard to set the stage for that now uh, and just making sure that we secure a hotel, making sure that uh, we refine the credentialing process for media and uh, preparing for a great experience for all the you know, folks that are going to be here in, in Tampa during that time. I, I, I love this idea of the logistics being right up front. Josh King and I have been through this uh, from different perspectives. I was a, a journalist at ABC News and Tribune Broadcasting before that. Uh, going back to the 2000 uh, convention, I have actually attended conventions back to 1992 um, in Houston. And, and Josh has been a part of these, too. He's a historian and, and, and loves the, the pomp and the circumstance. He's been in, involved with uh, President Clinton and, and other Democrats in this way. But Josh... In the 1920 can, convention in Chicago, remember? I mean, Josh, I were you Houston. that old? You oh, were yes, there in 1920. Yes. yes. But, but thank you, James for selecting Tampa, I mean, for Adam and me, who will probably have to come down to that convention so much better than Minneapolis, Minnesota uh, in, the, in the middle of the summer. So um, it'll be great to be in Tampa. I guess my first convention was uh, 1988 in Atlanta with Governor Dukakis and 92 uh, in New York with uh, Governor Clinton. And 96, we did a train trip all the way to the convention in Chicago. And then, as Adam mentioned, they really, the Obama team really raised the bar higher than ever, actually filling Mile High Stadium or Reliant Stadium, I guess it was, uh, with um, uh, with 60,000 people for the acceptance speech. What's going on now about in your thinking about infrastructure and your thinking about the 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 things the the things that will really mark Tampa as a unique convention? I think if you look back to 2008, McCain was sort of a uh, he fought long and hard right until the last day, and almost Minnesota came up before you could actually think about how to use it creatively. What are you What are you doing right now to get ready for for next summer? 
Well, that's a great question. You know, a lot has changed since 2008. In 2008, I think we had eight employees, uh, and now look at them. Uh, and so we're really going to, to harness the power of new technologies and try to create an innovative atmosphere that will take the convention to people across the country that can't be here. Uh, and so really creating that experience uh, for, for voters across the country and allowing them to be part of the nominating process to, to put the next Republican president in the White House. And so um, this, this is going to be unique in that uh, capacity. Look, there are a lot of things that are going to take place uh, regarding program and uh, platform and, and, and things like that that will be here. But those things right now are kind of the 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 the, the long-term planning, and, and we're still in the early formative stages of that. But one of the things that we're really focusing on is just in creating an engaging atmosphere using these new technologies here. Um, I mean, the, the media environment has completely changed since 2008. We went from being uh, using social media as a distribution center, a sort of syndication service, to really using it uh, to connect with voters on a more personal level. And you'll see a lot more of that uh, here in, in uh, 2012. So what exactly is going to be the venue uh, in Tampa? Is it going to be um, Tropicana Field or, or another location? We'll be here at the St. Pete Times Forum uh, for the convention event, and then the media will be housed in the neighboring uh, Tampa Bay Convention Center. So uh, we'll be all right there together. Um, it's a short distance between the Tampa Bay Convention Center, which is a phenomenal facility, very large. It will have lots of workspace, and, and, uh, and it will allow them uh, to, to really get the stories that they want and need, and it will uh, give us an opportunity to, to also feed them those stories. That reminds me of the uh, <clears throat> 2000 convention in, uh, in California, out in Los Angeles, where the, uh, the Democrats put us, I can include myself in this, the press, in the convention center, and then uh, the, the actual arena was, was the, the stage for the convention, and it beat the heck out of being in, uh, in uh, Philadelphia that same summer in tents. Uh, Josh, I don't know that you ever got to see that. No, but I got to Philadelphia. That was did a- you? <laughs> Those were a lot of tents. It was a lot of tents in the uh, in the parking lot and uh, a lot of effort. But when you think about uh, the the narrative that leads to the convention, and I think that's what Josh was bringing up. Uh, obviously, that's that's something that's going to sort of take uh, shape a little bit closer to the event, James. But it does give you this idea that uh, to create the journey to the St. Pete Times Forum, a place where perhaps the vice presidential nominee will be unveiled. Maybe it's in a press event before that. You have so much to plan for here. Are you all uh, focusing on the television side of things? You guys have hired a consultant, uh, I think, who's who's incredibly well-respected and has a great deal of experience at this. Talk to us about just the showmanship and the television that comes out of this and how you have to prepare for that. Well, I think what we're really focusing on is less of a, in this, uh, uh, an individual outlet or medium for uh, communicating, and what we're focusing on is an integrated uh, atmosphere of communication. So we did uh, bring on um, a, a consultant to, to help us uh, on staff with the production process, uh, and he will be focusing a lot Can we on say his integration name? aspect. Phil, Phil Alonji. That's uh, right, former uh, NBC uh, News Phil producer. Alonji. Everybody That's knows Phil. Phil. 
He is uh, incredibly well-respected and one of the best television producers out there. So the fact that the Republicans grabbed a hold of him is, is a big deal, isn't it, Josh? Absolutely. I mean, Phil, look, Phil, when he was at NBC News forever, was always planning the next huge event, whether it was the visit of the Pope to the United States, the next Olympics. And, you know, if even Phil had in his back pocket an exact plan for NBC News whenever Fidel Castro died. So this is a guy who anticipates every potential eventuality of every major event. And James, you say the approach is an integrated one. Unpack that for us a little bit. What does that mean to you? Sure. We're going to look at uh, revising a little bit how, how, this, how this happens. We've seen great examples. Uh, if you look at the royal wedding, for instance, and how Twitter and Facebook and text messaging all plugged into to the program, we want to take those best practices that we've seen and seen how effective they are, and we want to merge all of that here uh, to create a unique production for the Republican National Convention and to ultimately bridge all forms of communication into, into one strong message. Uh, and that's that we have the right nominee uh, uh, to take the White House in 2012. There's always a challenge when the team developing a convention, whether Democrat or Republican, and all the creativity and planning and logistics that goes into it needs to eventually incorporate the ideas and desires of the ultimate party nominee, either Republican or Democrat, and maybe in your case, it, it could be Mitt Romney. At this point, <clears throat> is anyone from the Romney campaign sort of engaging and in, in offering ideas or any other campaign? And how do you, as the campaign organization, being reaching out to all of the prospective nominees and telling them what your plans are for next summer. Sure. What we're really doing right now is laying some of the foundational groundwork, and that's not going to change. Some of the logistics things, uh, you know, we have pros here who have done this uh, several uh, conventions in a row. Uh, our COO, I think, is uh, on his 12th convention. So, I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. So he knows the logistical aspects of this. We're getting the, that part of the framework together so that when we do have a nominee, all we need to do is plug in the nominee and their message. So our convention will be a great convention. It'll be the best convention. It'll be a world-class event for whomever our nominee is. As you know, throughout this process, we stay unbiased through this because we don't know who the nominee is. And I think our, our, our um, candidates in the primary are less focused on the convention and more focused on grabbing the nomination right now. You know, having been behind the scenes uh, in the uh, 2008 convention, uh, representing the President of the United States uh, in St. Paul, understanding that uh, political tensions, especially with an incumbent president who's uh, you know, no longer uh, a candidate for office and you've got a candidate of the same party seeking uh, that office, it, it was a very awkward time. I know you were out there with me uh, going through that. But I remember, and I want to share with people who are, James, who are, you know, avid politicos who, who follow us here on Polyoptics, on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, the, the, the nuances, the music that everybody hears, the placards, and, the, and you know, it, it's often said that uh, coincidence takes a lot of practice or takes a lot of preparation. And the idea that spontaneity is truly spontaneous is not exactly true when it comes to a, a big, full-fledged show like a national convention, you're not alone. The Democrats deal with the same thing. So the logistics, the mechanisms to be able to bring these things forward, to have all of the capabilities that you need, kind of starts with building a staff. 
where are you now with that staff and how far will you get by the end of the year? And is the majority of the hiring and the volunteer uh, elements of this something that comes into play, what, late spring of 2012? Sure. Well, you know, I think the only thing, uh, the only real spontaneity in uh, 2008 convention was Hurricane Gustav. Uh, so, I mean, that that everything gets planned and everything gets planned to a, to a T. There's uh, a ton of staff that really focuses in and hones in on the details. A lot of the staff have done this before, and um, and so this is not their first uh, first rodeo. If not you will. their first rodeo. You can hear that not- a lot in Republican circles. Not not their first rodeo. So, um, but to to really get at the, your your question, which is where are we at in the staff planning now, there are staff that have been on here for on uh, here for months, working, uh, laying the groundwork. Uh, as you know, I I, I came on. Uh, this is now my third week, so I'm one of the relative newbies. But we'll see tons of staff added over the course of the next few months. Uh, obviously, the hiring is staggered as more people start to turn and, and pay attention to the Republican convention. We'll have more and more staff because we'll have to meet those demands uh, from the media as well as uh, lay the finish, uh, fin- do the finishing touches, which will really make this uh, event special. All right, so let me ask you, do you get worried the way that, that I used to when I was a journalist or even as as a uh, deputy communications director in the White House for Mother Nature's impact on best laid plans. You're in Florida. It's going to be summer. You could very well be dealing with another hurricane. Anything is anything is possible. Uh, we can't uh, predict those things, um, and certainly we'll have uh, some plans, some contingency plans in place uh, to make sure that everyone is safe and secure, and that we that we make sure that we do what we need to do, uh, and 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 getting out messages uh, to ensure the safety of others in the community. All right, so it's uh, it's, so it's on your mind, right? You're thinking about absolutely. it. Can't not be. Um, you know, I think more so. You, you know, those things have to be more so on your mind um, uh, when you're when you're in the uh, in the Bay Area or when you're in uh, a coastal region than you know Minnesota, for instance. Uh, but obviously, they were they were on our mind, and even in mid mid uh, midland uh, Minnesota there. So I mean, that's. Uh, you know, that's the reality of what we, what we have to deal with, right? That, that is absolutely right. You know, one of the things that I think people might be interested to know a little bit more about is a point that you made. Um, you think about Florida, sometimes we have uh, um, Super Bowls down there. What we have is in excess of 15,000 press that gather for over a week, satellite trucks from all over the nation gathered at the site of, of both uh, national conventions, but dealing with a press operation that large, that varied, is a huge challenge. It's almost unprecedented. It, it, it's a, it's almost akin to the kind of every four year Olympic presence that we get with press. How do you begin to tackle that? Even with your experience in in knowing what the needs are and dealing with folks. This is going to be something that is probably even larger than uh, sort of setting new records, right? Absolutely. I mean, look, the the, the real 
um, challenge here is just to find great people to put around you. Uh, and I think that's the, the, the thing that you try to do in any successful organization. And, and we're doing that here. We're doing that in the logistical and planning stages. Uh, and we'll also do that in, in the, my operation, which will be I will bring in experienced media um, handlers that will come in and be able to help and uh, help the, the media and proactively engage the media with stories. There are 15,000 members of the media. The Super Bowl, in comparison, is somewhere, um, I've heard estimates between three and 4,000 credentialed members of the media, depending. Uh, the Olympics is really the only larger event at uh, roughly 18,000. Uh, but look, we're also, we're also uh, a four-day event. So the Super Bowl happens in a day, and the media go home. Uh, we're, this is a four-day event, so there's, it's, it's not just a sprint. This is a marathon. The, uh, the, the advice that I would give you unsolicited is, and I think you know this well uh, from all of your experience and, and, and the things that you have done in this realm, but the press operation, being the chief spokesman and the communications director, is as much about being able to listen, about being able to appreciate what stories are out there, what the media needs, keeping an eye on real-time development of stories so that you can continue to uh, feed the beast, which is pretty much a term that everybody understands these days, but also help to cut off uh, you know, erroneous stories or things that uh, can be tangential to the main event that can suddenly subsume it. So you really have an operation that's as much about putting stuff out as as gathering information and making sure that you're interfaced with all of the press and all of the other stakeholders in your event. Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's great advice, and uh, it's not lost upon me. Um, this is a 24-hour news cycle um, with the, uh, the real push and growth that we've seen in social media and the growth of bloggers. Um, you know, one story may start out on Twitter, it may start out on Facebook, and then the next thing you know, it's uh, the headline for the Washington Post. So it, it's important to, to go ahead and monitor all of that. It's important to be able to respond uh, proactively to all of that to make sure that the record is straight, uh, to make sure that you're filling the need of uh, individuals' uh, desire for information. And so we will absolutely um, uh, be monitoring and, and pushing forward in, in that way. All right, final question for you, James, because uh, as you know, because we've had a chance to, to catch up a bit before we went on the air together, uh, it's it's really a pleasure to be able to talk to the, to the national conventions, and we're going to do the same thing with your counterpart, over at the Democratic National Convention, but you talked about hotels, and this is a really, really big deal because not everyone can stay right there, but then you also have very deep pockets for donors, for organizations, for news organizations. You know, CNN traditionally rents out a restaurant and creates some kind of crazy CNN grill. Uh, Are you getting the impression that people are really... Uh, investing right now in that in that event, uh, the Republican National Convention in 2012, or people kind of keeping their powder dry, waiting to see where they will sort of put their stake in the ground. 
absolutely. People are, are are definitely investing, and they're calling and trying to figure out uh, new information every day. And our staff is working diligently to try to get this information uh, together and cleared and get it out to them to answer their questions. Uh, we're very early in the process, and we've seen a tremendous excitement around the Republican National Convention. And, and, and I anticipate that that excitement is only going to grow. Yeah. And that's one that's one of the reasons why my staff has to grow. Uh, because uh, just just as I sit here and talk to you today, um, I'll I'll need a staff that will go out and talk to the other you know fourteen thousand nine hundred ninety nine members of the press corps <laughs> that want to be here uh, because I can't certainly fill that void on my own. I mean, there's a tremendous excitement I think uh, around around the 2012 convention, and I, and I anticipate fully that that will grow uh, and continue to grow up to the time when we yeah. uh, the gavel comes down and we and we um, announce our nominee. James Davis, Communications Director and Chief Spokesman for the 2012 Republican National Convention in Tampa, Florida at the St. Pete Times Forum. We're glad to check in with you early in the process. We will keep up with you, and I can assure you that we will be there and be part of the party as we will with the Democratic National Convention uh, in the year to come. Thanks for joining us on Polyoptics. Thank you. I look forward to welcoming you to Tampa Bay. Well, that'll do it for Polyoptics this week. How do you take your politics? Is it shaken? Stirred? How about on the rocks? Next Friday, Sirius XM's POTUS channel, we're returning to the Truman Lounge at the National Press Club for a second episode of Politics on the Rocks, kicking off the one-year countdown to the 2012 election. I hope you'll join me and Tim Farley and some of the best political reporters in Washington for a few rounds of politics as we raise glasses to the year that's coming. We'll see you next time on Polyoptics on POTUS, Sirius XM 125.